Heavenly Father, as we come before your word, we pray that our hearts may be blameless towards it. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would not be put to shame as we look at your word, but, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would be cleansing us by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that we would come to you and hear your word through Jesus and that our eyes and our ears would be opened to the truths that are proclaimed here and that we would then put them into practice. And, Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we come once again to the book of 1 Samuel, and this will be the last week that we spend in 1 Samuel for some time. So we've been working our way through it, and we come to chapter 7. Chapter 7, which is found on two, page 268 of the Black Church Bibles. If you've got a Bible there, open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 7, which we've been working through. Uh, we've had seven sermons on it, and we'll take a break and go to John's Gospel next week, uh, because there's a nice division between chapter 7 and chapter 8, and we'll return, Lord willing, to Samuel at some point in the future. But this morning we'll be focusing on 1 Samuel chapter 7. And we've been looking at the book of 1 Samuel as we've seen the rise of Samuel, the prophet, to leadership position within Israel. At the beginning of the book, Samuel wasn't even born. Uh, we see the book opens with uh, Hannah, his mother, praying that she would have a child. And then the Lord hears her prayer and grants her a son. And then this son she dedicates to uh, the Lord's work. She puts him in, uh, under the charge of Eli, the priest, who is leading God's people at this time as they live in the promised land. They're living in the land of Israel, but they do not have a king at this stage. Uh, that will come when we, Lord willing, come back to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 8 uh, starts the process of looking at establishing a kingship within Israel. But at this stage, uh, Eli was leading uh, the people of Israel as they're in the promised land. They've come out under the leadership of Moses from Egypt, they've come through the desert, they've come into the promised land, and they're there with different judges looking after them. And the last judge before Samuel was the priest Eli. But Eli's sons were uh, not of the caliber of Eli himself. They were wicked sons, and we've seen how they were put to death uh, as they took the ark of God into battle against the enemies of the Israelites, the Philistines. And so we've watched the power of God being displayed under the uh, return of the ark from the Philistine camp. The ark of God was captured uh, by the Philistines. It was returned. And then we see this morning that the ark of God has been uh, put in the area of Kiriath-Jerim. We saw that last time, and it stays there. We see uh, in verse 2, 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2, we see that the ark remains at Kiriath-Jerim for a period of 20 years. Look with me at verse 2 of 1 Samuel chapter 7. 1 Samuel chapter 7, It was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, and all the people of Israel mourned and sought after the Lord. So we see the Israelites here are now seeking after the Lord as they should, and we see that Samuel is the one who now assumes a position of authority. Eli is dead, Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons are dead, and so Samuel now takes over the role of judging Israel. And we see that as he gives them advice of what to do as they seek the Lord. Look with me at verse 3. Verse 3 of 1 Samuel 7. And Samuel said to the whole house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths, and commit yourselves to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals and Ashtoreths, and served the Lord 
only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mitzpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mitzpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel was leader of Israel at Mitzpah. So here we see the Israelites behaving in a right manner. We've seen the, uh, the wrong that the Israelites have committed, the way that they thought that they could manipulate God by taking his ark into battle and they, they would naturally win against the Philistines. But here we see that instead of manipulating God, they're willing to confess their sin, they're willing to put away their false gods, and they're willing to be under the leadership of Samuel. But then we see that there's a problem that arises. Because all the Israelites have assembled in one place, uh, the enemy gets a little afraid as to what is going on. And so we read in verse 7, When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mitzpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack them. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. He cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf, and the Lord answered him. So the Philistines are assembling for war. These are the enemies of Israel. They are going to fight. And so the Israelites ask Samuel as their leader, as their prophet, to intercede with God on their behalf. And he does so. He intercedes to God and makes a sacrifice there. And what is the result? Does the ark of God get captured and the, Phil- uh, the Israelites are de- defeated by the Philistines again? No. Read with me from verse 10. Verse 10. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. The men of Israel rushed out of Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to a point below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen. He named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far has the Lord helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not invade Israelite territory again. So we see they come to fight the Philistines. They've had Samuel pray. They've had Samuel make a sacrifice. And they are triumphant over the Philistines. We see that God thunders against the Philistines and that the victory is there. And then we see from this point on that there's a period of peace that descends upon the people of Israel in their relationship with the Philistines. Continue with me from verse 13. The middle of verse 13, it's a new paragraph in the NIV scripture we've got in front of you. The word throughout there is where we'll begin. Throughout Samuel's lifetime, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines. The towns from Ekron to Gath that the Philistines had captured from Israel were restored to her, and Israel delivered the neighboring territory from the power of the Philistines. And there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel continued as judge over Israel all the days of his life. From year to year, he went on a circuit from Bethel to Gilgal to Mitzpah, judging Israel in all those places. But he always went back to Ramah, where his home was, and there he also judged Israel, and he built an altar there to the Lord. So here we see a time of peace as the Israelites have repented of their sins. They've come and sought the Lord properly. We see a peace that comes to the land of Israel, and Samuel is established as the prophet and judge of Israel at this time, which will then be important when we return to 
the book of Samuel to see how the kingship is established using the prophet Samuel. And so that's a very important thing because, of course, the kingship that is eventually established by Samuel is the one from which we get the Lord Jesus. And so the Lord Jesus is the one who is the one who sits on the throne of Judah. He is the one whose throne goes right back to this book in one, of 1 Samuel and under the leadership of the prophet Samuel himself. So what can we learn from this passage today? What can we learn from 1 Samuel 7? Well, there's a number of things we could look at. We can look at the confession of sin. We can look at the place of sacrifice. We can look at uh, the removing of false gods uh, from within our midst. But the thing that I thought would be particularly helpful for us today and helpful for even me as I struggle in the Christian life is looking at verse 8 and the actions of the Israelites there where they give this desperate cry. What do we see the Israelites doing in verse 8? They said to Samuel, Do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Israelites. I want to look at this verse 8 in particular and how there's an emphasis there on asking for prayer. Asking for prayer. The Israelites are afraid. They know the Philistines have assembled. They know the Philistines have defeated them in the past and even captured the Ark of God. And so they're afraid. And what do they do in their fear? They ask Samuel to pray. And this is a common thing that we see in the scriptures, that people, when they're afraid of something, they come to others who have a relationship with God and ask that person to pray to God on their behalf. We see it earlier in the Bible, before the book of 1 Samuel, particularly in God's servant Moses. Moses often interceded on behalf of the grumbling and complaining Israelites. He interceded on their behalf as they sinned against God. He would intercede on their behalf for them, that he would pray to God on behalf of the Israelites. And then in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is a a wonderful example of someone who asks others to pray, not that... He is uh, asking for prayer requests for him to pray, even though we know the Apostle Paul had a wonderful relationship with God. He asks others to pray for him. I'll just read some of those texts, and one we just heard before, read for us from Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 19, the Apostle Paul says, Pray also for me. So the people of Ephesus, pray also for me, that whenever I open my mouth, Words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. There the Apostle Paul, the great evangelist, the great missionary. What is he asking for from the people in Ephesus? For prayer. Pray also for me. Pray that I may declare the gospel fearlessly. You thought that there was someone who wasn't afraid of declaring the gospel. You think it'd be the Apostle Paul, but there he is admitting that he needs prayer if he is to speak the words of Jesus Christ fearlessly. And then again in Romans chapter 15, verse 30, the Apostle Paul says, writing to the church in Rome now, the other letter was to the church in Ephesus, to the church in Rome, I urge you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. Once again, asking for prayer. Pray that I may be rescued from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service in Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints there so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and together with you be refreshed. He's asking for prayer that he will be safe when he goes to Jerusalem. 
And then in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, another one of his letters, this time to the church in, uh, in the, the Colossian church, he says in Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. The Apostle Paul once again saying, please pray for me. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, chapter 5, verse 25. So this is to the church in Thessalonica. What does the Apostle Paul say in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 25? Brothers, pray for us. And then in 2 Thessalonians, his second letter to the church in Thessalonica, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1, finally, brothers, after he said everything he's got to say, finally, brothers, pray for us that the message of the Lord may spread rapidly and be honoured just as it was with you and pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men for not everyone has faith. He's afraid of wicked and evil men who do not have faith. And so what does he do in face of that fear? The Apostle Paul says, brothers, pray for me. And then the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 18, I don't believe the book of Hebrews was written by the Apostle Paul. Some people disagree with me on that, but the author of Hebrews, whoever he was, says in chapter 13, verse 18, pray for us. He was not ashamed to ask for prayer. And the epistle of James, James, the brother of the Lord Jesus, James chapter 5, verse 14, says, is any one of you sick? What should you do when you're sick? Here's some advice for you from James chapter 5. He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. There's a number of examples for you from the New Testament of people asking for prayer, just as we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 7, that the Israelites, as they are afraid, they come to Samuel and they say, pray for us. They beg for prayer from the prophet Samuel. And so the question for us this morning is, do we follow the example of the Israelites and the Apostle Paul? Do we follow the instruction of God? to ask others to pray for us, as it says there in James chapter 5, that we are meant to ask people to pray for us. And I ask that question because I suspect most of us, including myself on many occasions, we do not ask for prayer, for rescue, for deliverance from our fears, as we should. Now, why is that? Why do we not cry out like the Israelites, as we should, to others around us to pray for us? Well, I've got a few ideas. Firstly, is it because we do not ask for prayer? Uh, we do not ask for prayer because life is actually pretty good. Do you not ask for prayer for rescue because life is pretty good for you? You have no fears at all. Do you think your life is so good that you do not need prayer? There are no Philistines attacking you and your family, so you do not need to ask someone to pray for you. The world isn't going down the gurgler, in your opinion. Uh, work is pretty hunky-dory at the moment. Your family is a lovely family. There's no need for prayer for them. You're acing all your exams at school or at university. You have a clean bill of health and you're not struggling with lust or hatred, gossip, doubts or any other sin. And everyone in your life is a Christian. And so no one's in danger of going to hell. So you don't need prayer for your life. Is that the reason that you do not ask others to pray for you? Or maybe there's another reason. 
Do we not ask for prayer because we're not as afraid as we should be? See, in verse 7, we see that the Israelites, they cry out for prayer because they are afraid. Is it that you're not actually afraid of much? Yes, your life may not be uh, that good, but you're not afraid of what's going on in your life. I actually have a coffee mug at home that I got for Christmas from the kids, and it says on it in large print uh, with a big smiley face, uh, I'm smiling because I have no idea what's going on. I'm smiling because I have no idea what's going on. Is that you? You have no idea about the problems going on in your life, so therefore you're not afraid, and therefore you do not need anyone to pray for you. You do not need to ask for prayer because you're oblivious to what's going on. You don't read missionary newsletters and find out about the troubles that are going on in other churches. Uh, You do not ask your family about their souls and their relationship with God. You do not ask people at church how they're going just in case they might share something bad uh, that you might need to pray about for them. No, you are smiling because you have no idea what's going on. And so therefore, you do not have any fears and you do not need anyone to pray for you. Is that your reason for not asking for prayer? That you're not afraid as you should be? Or maybe life is pretty good for you? Or maybe it's this third reason. You do not ask for prayer because of your pride. You don't actually like asking for help. Are we often more like the Philistines and Eli's sons who thought that they could do things their way and everything would go well? We're in a desperate situation, but we can't bear to humble ourselves and ask for help. We like our privacy, thank you very much. And I'm not going to share my troubles with others because then they might actually think that my life isn't going as well as it appears on Facebook, that my life isn't all wonderful that it's actually full of trouble and distress and there's people around me that make me look down, uh, that I'm not the capable person that I like to display and so I don't ask for prayer because I want to portray that my life is far better than it actually is. I may be in desperate situations but there's no way I'm going to ask someone to pray for me. Or maybe fourth reason. Do we not ask for prayer because deep down we think that prayer doesn't actually work? Is that the reason we don't ask people to pray? That deep down we don't think that prayer works? Atheists think that prayer is simply a waste of time. And that's the logical conclusion of their position. If there is no God, why would you spend time praying to that God? And why would I bother asking somebody else to pray for me? And I saw this come out recently when I, an atheist friend was in great distress uh, because his cat had gone missing, and he loves that cat. He doesn't have any children, and that cat was very dear to him, and his cat was missing, and, and I heard about it, and I said, oh, I'm so sorry, and my natural response was to say, look, I'll pray for your cat. And as soon as I said that, rather than saying thanks, uh, he said, ah, oh, How do you know that prayer works? And he wanted to get into a debate about prayer. And you could tell he thought it was an absolute waste of time for me to pray that his cat would return. Even though he was in great distress, he wasn't willing for someone to pray for his cat that it would return. And I think that deep down we often function as practical atheists. We may say that we're Christians. We may say that we believe that there is a God. But when it comes to troubles in our life and 
the need for people to pray for us, we function as practical atheists. That means that in, in, in the way that we live, we show that there's a, still a part of us that's atheistic. There's still a part of us that doesn't believe that God exists, and we still don't believe that God is the all-powerful, all-loving God who hears our prayers and will act within our lives. There's a part of us that still thinks, yeah, I could get people to pray, but will it really work Won't it just be a waste of my time asking them to pray and won't it be a waste of their time to actually pray? So there's four reasons why I think we don't ask for prayer as much as we should. We actually think our life is pretty good and we don't need prayer. Another reason may be we're a bit oblivious to the troubles of our life and we don't think that we need prayer. Or it's our pride. Or it may be that we don't think prayer works. But are any of those good reasons to not ask people to pray, not to ask people to pray. Are any of those reasons ringing true for you? Are they valid reasons as to why you shouldn't ask people to pray? Is life really so good for you that you don't need prayer? Is your life really that good? We live in a very prosperous land. We live in a wonderful land. When you compare Australia to many of the other countries of the world, we are so blessed. But is life so good that you don't need others to pray for you? Are you not afraid? Are you oblivious to the problems going on in your life? Are you greater than the Apostle Paul, who humbled himself and asked for prayer? Is your pride getting in the way of asking people to pray? Are you stronger than Paul was? He needed prayer, but you certainly don't. Or is it that you really do believe that prayer doesn't work? Is that true? Do you believe prayer doesn't work? Do you not understand that prayer from others does work? We know it is true. We see it here in the scriptures. We see it in 1 Samuel chapter 7. They ask Samuel to pray, and what happens? God thunders and routs the Philistines. And we see again and again that this happens in the scriptures. We've seen that God is a powerful God. We see it here in 1 Samuel chapter 7, but we see it again and again throughout the scriptures. We see the miracles that God can do in response to prayer. We see the Israelites asking for prayer. We see God acting as Samuel prays and offers the perfect sacrifice. And so shouldn't we then realize that that same God is alive today and that people can come to God and ask for things through the perfect sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ? If God accepted this whole burnt offering that we see in verse 9, if he accepted that, and then routed the Philistines. Won't he accept the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ that every Christian, when they come to God, brings? That that's the way that they access the living God is through that sacrifice of Jesus Christ, not a lamb, the lamb of God, a man himself who was perfect, who was sinless, and also at the same time, the divine son of God. Do you think God really won't answer? the prayers of people who come through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus on your behalf? Do you have a valid reason for not asking people to pray for you? I can think of one reason, one valid reason why you shouldn't ask people to pray for you. What is that reason? Because you've never prayed to God yourself. Because you do not believe in the God of the Scriptures. That is a valid reason not Uh, to not ask people, not to ask people to pray for you. That is a valid reason. Why? Because 
Why would you ask someone to pray to a God that you do not believe in yourself? What should you do? Well, you should humble yourself and pray to God first before you ask people to pray for you. Yes, it's great to ask people to pray for you, but firstly, you have to believe in the Lord Jesus yourself. You have to believe that he died for your sins. You need to go to God. That's the first priority of your life, is to go to God and ask for forgiveness of sins. Ask that those things that you have done against him would be forgiven through the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see the Israelites give an example of that for us in verse 3. Verse 3 of 1 Samuel chapter 7. The Samuel says to them uh, that they need to return to the Lord their God with all their hearts and rid themselves of the foreign gods and the asterisks and commit themselves to the Lord and serve him only and he will then deliver them out of the hand of the, Israel, the Philistines. And so we see in verse 4 that the Israelites put away their Baals and asterisks and serve the Lord only. And then we see in verse 6, after they've repented of their sins, they've gotten rid of their gods, that they assemble at Mitzpah, they draw water and pour it out before the Lord. And on that day they fasted, and there they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. That is the prayer that you need to offer first before you ask anybody else to pray for you. I have sinned against the Lord. You need to come to God and do that. And then ask others to pray for you. Because we can't help you if you already are outside of Christ. If you remain outside of Christ, we can't help you. What you need to do is come to God in prayer and ask for forgiveness of sins and then ask for further blessing from him by the power of his spirit. Now, you may be here this morning and, of course, you say, I'm a Christian. Okay, I'm a Christian and I want prayer. Yes, you convinced me, Joel. I want prayer from others. But how do I get prayer? How do I get others to pray for me? Give me some practical tips here. Samuel's there with the Israelites. He's obviously taking prayer points. How can I get people to pray for me? Well, this is where your local church is so important. That is the place primarily where you should be asking people to pray for you. God has given us here at Dremoyne Baptist many Samuels, many Samuels who have committed themselves to God through the Lord Jesus Christ so they have access to God in prayer. Their prayers are not going to a dumb idol. Their prayers are going to God himself. They have access to him. And they have committed themselves not only to God, but they've committed themselves to you here at this local church. They've said, yes, I accept you as a brother and sister in Christ. And if you're part of my family, then I'm responsible for taking care of you, for looking after you. So how do you get prayer? Well, you find it at your local church. Now, how do you get people at your local church to pray for you? Well, firstly, ask your elders to pray for you. Elders are ones who have signed up to give themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Prayer and the ministry of the word. Two things that elders are responsible for. Prayer and the ministry of the word. Teaching the Bible and praying for the work of God and particularly for the people at Ramon Baptist. Your elders at this church are committed to praying for you. And so they are praying for you whether you like it or not. But you can also ask them to pray for you. And so you should welcome requests from your elders as to how they can be praying for you. I do this at pastoral visits. When I come for a pastoral visit, that's your chance to ask for me to pray for you for the next six months about a particular matter. Now, I know some of you may find pastoral visits annoying and uh, invasive coming round to your home, and I get the hint sometimes, and so I'm not going to press myself on you. If you don't want me in your home, that's fine. I will stop doing so. I'm not going to push myself upon people. 
If you don't want my prayer and you don't want my help, well, then that's fine. I will still pray for you generally, but I won't be able to pray for you specifically about your requests. But I would encourage you, welcome me into your home when I come round for the six monthly visits. Welcome me and say, these are the things I'd like you to pray about for me. That's your opportunity. I'm right there to do what Samuel did many years ago for the Israelites. What's another way that you can get people to pray for you at your church? Well, ask members of the church to pray for you. We have these prayer directories. We have a recent edition, which I've just given out. There is space next to everybody's photo and name there for you to write in extra prayer points. So therefore, go to people and tell them what they can be praying for you. Say, right next to my face, these prayer points, these people that I'm concerned about in my life, ask them to pray for you. And send emails and text messages to people of the church. You've got people's contact details there for a reason. They're there so that when you've got a problem, a severe problem in your life, you can quickly send a text to someone or an email and say, please pray for me about this matter that I'm struggling with. Also, you could ask me to include whatever is going on in your life in my pastoral prayer emails. I send out pretty much every fortnight an email talking about the concerns of the church. You can actually ask me to include you in that so that people will pray for you. I usually brainstorm myself trying to work out what are the things that are going on in the church that we need prayer for. I rarely have anyone ask me, could you include me in that? But you can. I'm opening the door now. You can ask me for whatever's going on so that the members of Des Moines Baptist will receive that email and pray for you. Another way is by joining a Bible study. At the end of every Bible study in this church, there's a time for prayer. Join a Bible study. You can learn God's word, but at the same time, you can also get someone to pray for you at the end of it. A whole group of people are gathered there, and you can raise a prayer point so that they come before God in prayer. And then fifthly, and it ties in well with what Danny said before, every Sunday afternoon at 5.30 p.m., a group of godly people are available to pray for you every week at the prayer meeting. At the prayer meeting, we pray for lots of things. We pray for the world, we pray for Australia generally, but we do pray for one another. We pray for concerns that are going on within the church. Now, what does it cost you to come along to the prayer meeting? Basically, your time. We don't charge at the door as you come in. All it costs you is your time to come along and then get people to pray for you. And as Danny said, people will remember those things and then pray for you again and again through the week. Whereas if you're not there... How is someone going to know to pray about the matter that you're in your absence? My mum likes to say, God doesn't bless an empty chair. God doesn't bless an empty chair. If you want people to pray for you, show up at the prayer meeting and it will happen. We don't charge. I saw a website this week that you can pay someone to pray for you. And this is particularly in, uh, there's a church in Israel, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, uh, which is, Sepulchre is uh, Latin for tomb. So this is the church where they think Jesus was actually buried, that the tomb, well, he didn't stay buried, did he? He came back. But the tomb that he was in for uh, three days, that that's that tomb. And so they built a church over the top of it. And so you can actually pay, there's a website, where a priest will go into that church and for a smaller fee, he will say a prayer for you in that church. And if you want to pay extra, he will light a candle as well for you and pray. Here at Des Moines Baptist at our prayer meeting, we don't charge you. We won't light a candle, I'm sorry. We don't do candles. There's probably a fire risk here in this church. Uh, I don't think the elders would like the idea of lighting candles at the prayer meeting. But... We don't charge even a small fee to pray for you. Come along to the prayer meeting. We'll pray for you. 
and you can then see the Lord thunder in answer to your prayer. Harness the prayers of the people at Ramoyne Baptist. God has given you brothers and sisters in Christ. You're not walking alone in this world with the distresses that are coming upon you. You have brothers and sisters around you. Harness their prayer support and then rejoice as you watch the Lord thunder as he thundered against the Philistines so many years ago. Harness that prayer support. The prayers of many are powerful. The help and support of many is powerful. In 2014, a man was boarding a train in Perth and got his legs stuck between the train and platform. The Guardian newspaper reported, a commuter who trapped his leg between a train and the platform was freed after dozens of his fellow passengers pushed the carriage back. The man was boarding the train into Perth at Stirling Station on Wednesday morning when he stepped awkwardly, causing him to slip down the gap. Passengers were asked to stand on the other side of the carriage to tilt the weight away from the man, but it was not enough to free him, a spokesman for Trans Perth said. So this man's got his legs stuck between the, the train and the platform. And so what do they do? They get all the passengers to go on the other side of the train and sort of try and tilt the train carriage up so that the man can get his leg out. But that didn't work. When that didn't work, train staff got people off and gathered together enough of them to line up, 50 or so, and say, one, two, three, push. And so they all pushed against this carriage. And one passenger said, the man appeared to be in shock, but not in pain, and was lifted to safety by two other passengers once the gap widened. Paramedics treated the man, but he was not badly injured and caught a later train. Then he wouldn't go on a train again for the rest of his life. But evidently he was okay and got on the next one. See the power of a lot of people trying to help someone out. And why was the man willing to have that help? Because he was in a desperate situation. He knew he couldn't get it out on his own, and so he was willing to have people look at him and go, oh, poor bloke, and help him. And the people were willing to help because they felt compassion for this man, and they knew they could do something to help. It's the same for us. When we're in trouble, when we're in distress, when we're in a desperate situation, you don't have to bear it alone. You can ask others to pray as the Israelites did so many years ago. And you think you don't have anything to pray about, to ask people to pray about? Well, just consider your loved ones outside of Christ. Those people that you love and that you know that are outside of Christ. They're trapped, not for a little while, at a train station. They're trapped for all eternity if they do not get released from the the king, uh, the king of this of this world, Satan himself. If they do not get released from Satan, they are trapped for all eternity. Consider them, and won't you ask people to pray for you as you go into combat for their soul, as you go against Satan and all the powers of darkness, as they try to keep your loved one from entering into heaven? Won't you ask people to pray for you? That is a desperate situation you're in. Your sister, your mother, your child. Won't you ask people to pray for you? Don't be afraid of what Christians might think of you and your loved ones who are not Christians or the desperate situations you're in. Don't be afraid. Get them to pray and then rejoice as you see the Lord thunder in answer to the prayers of many. Let's come to God in prayer now. Let's speak to him. Heavenly Father, we praise you as a God who hears prayer. 
And so, Lord, we thank you for giving us brethren to pray for us. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for any pride that has stopped us from asking for prayer in the past. And Lord, we ask that going forward that you would help us to value the prayers of others and be eager to ask brothers and sisters in Christ to pray for our concerns. And Lord, we pray that you would give us an eager expectation as we hear prayers being offered on our behalf to watch as you thunder in answer to our prayers. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.